birth to in eternity past, that we can tend to think these, these are metaphors only, and that somehow our father and son relationships, our parent-child relationships are realer, are truer, and God is, is the shadow. I think the exact opposite is the truth. I think that if anything, God wanting to reveal his nature created parenthood, created childhood as vehicles to demonstrate the reality of intra-Trinitarian relationships. But to help us understand this, we, we focus rightly on the love, the determination, the obedience, the humility, the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And yet there's at least one passage I know of in Romans 8 that thinks of the Father's suffering, if you will. His, his gift, his um, la- loss, as it were. I think the story of Abraham and Isaac helps flesh that out some. We read this earlier. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a reference to Psalm 56. We'll get to in a few weeks. God is for us. How do we know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the proof. If you ever wonder, is God for me or is God against me? Is God got his own interests and prerogatives, or is God's interests and my interests, do they line up? Do I ever have to worry that God might not be for me? He's going to do something else, promote some other agenda. You need look no further than the fact that he gave his son. Paul's logic is simple. The, the, it's in our, it's Hebrews, from the greater to the lesser. If he gave the greatest thing, if he gave us his son, if he gave up his son, how can you worry whether or not God will give you Money, jobs, other things. And of course, that echoes the language in Genesis 22, where the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ, says to Abraham, you have not withheld your own son. Now I know you fear me. Twice it's repeated. And so in the Genesis account, we see and understand the magnitude the, the terrifying magnitude of Abraham's devotion, fear, and love of God, right? And the logic is, in the same way, we see God's commitment to, his love for, his determination to be 100% for his people in the gift of his son. So if you, if you, if you are tempted to think it was somehow easier for the father to give his son on our behalf... You're wrong. There is a gift. There is a a massive evidence of God's 100% for you and for me. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? This is what sets up those antitheses where Paul says neither height nor depth, nor things to come, nor things that are past can separate us in love. All of that grounded in, we, we can bank on that because of the inexpressible value of the gift. If this father gave up his unique, one-of-a-kind son for us, how can we ever question his love for us? And probably the most overt reference to the uh, sacrifice of, of Isaac is in John chapter 1. 
Um, this is, of course, the gospel where Jesus is referred to as the, the one and only, the monogenes, the unique son. Um, and John is, is richly intertexturing his, his account with Old Testament texts. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And in fact, in the other gospels, he's John the baptizer. In John's gospel, you could rightly call him John the witness. That's how he's introduced. There came a witness from God to testify. He was not the true light, but he testified to the light. And then we see him twice testify to Jesus. And one of the things John does in his gospel is he, he begins by giving Jesus titles that don't exist in other places. So how does John 1.1 1, 1 begin? In the beginning was the word. No other gospel writer refers to Jesus that way. And as it seems pretty evident that John wrote last, I think it likely that John in his introduction of Jesus to an audience who has read the other gospels is likely trying to point out new facets, new truths, not new truths, but truths that have not received as much attention in the other gospels. And so when you read, in the beginning was the word, you kind of slow down. You're not used to thinking of Jesus in the word. How is Jesus the word? That, that's beneficial for us. We, we will get to familiar titles for Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, the son of David. We, John's gospel knows of those things, but in the beginning, he's the word. And then we get another unique title. We read in John 1, 29 to 36. The next day, this is John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then the day after that, in verse 35, John was standing with two disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. I can't help but hear the echo of Abraham's words. In Genesis 22, the very site is named. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. God will provide for himself a lamb. And then, some thousands of years later, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Israel had offered up many sacrifices for sin, they had provided lambs. They had provided rams and bulls and turtle doves, wave offerings and grain offerings, thank offerings, sin offerings. None of those could do anything real, accomplish anything permanent. And now at last, God has provided a lamb. It's the same picture. The dilemma is resolved. Abraham is in a dilemma. God provides a substitute, a scapegoat, a sacrifice so that Isaac can live. And that pictures, that sets up Jesus being the lamb that God would supply. Israel for hundreds of years has been supplying lambs and lambs and lambs. Every Passover, this is the lamb of this family. This is the lamb of this family. This is the lamb provided by this family. And finally, here is God's lamb. And with this lamb that God provides, there will be no further sacrifices. And so John introduces him Encouraging us to think of him as that lamb. What we could not do, what we could never pay for, what we could never atone for, God has accomplished for us in his son, providing a lamb for us that we might live. Just as Isaac lives and the ram dies, 
so you and I may live even as Jesus dies. His death, my life. He, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God, 2,000 years ago, provided the lamb, a spotless, sinless lamb, who died on our behalf, who stood in our stead, who bore the wrath for our sins. This is God's provision. Nothing you can do, nothing I can do can atone. There is no lamb of Jeremy that can do any good. There's a lamb of God that God has provided. He takes away, removes, cleanses the sins of the world. And we share in that forgiveness as we turn and put our faith and trust in him. We trust in God's lamb, not our lamb, not our deeds, not our salvation, not our escape hatch, but the lamb that God supplied. We need to recognize our helpless state, that if God does not deliver us, if God does not supply a savior, we are undone. The good news, of course, is that he has. And so 2,000 years ago, we, we see final proof of God's love for us. He is for us. If you are in Christ, he is for you in every sense of the word. Never doubt it. And if you do, look to his gift. If he's given his son, how will he withhold any other good thing from you? And we understand that Jesus is God's sacrifice, God's lamb given on our behalf for the sins of the world. And God wanting us to better understand that, better grip that. You ever wonder why God gave Abraham such a difficult and strange command? At least in part, it's so that we might better see and understand and appreciate the gift of his own son. We'll now hear the cantata sing and we'll prepare for a time of communion.